How far should we look back to find the attitudes that bolster white supremacy? It turns out we should look back pretty far. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. We've been engaged here at the Folger in a series of critical race conversations. And a question that comes up a lot is this. When did the concept of race begin to appear? As you can imagine, like pretty much anything involving the subject of race, that's a controversial question, including in the world of Shakespeare studies. But it's one that a cadre of younger scholars is diving into these days, building upon work done by the pioneering black feminist and pre-modern critical race scholars who came before them. One of those thinkers is Ombreen Dadaboy, an assistant professor of literature at Harvey Mudd, the liberal arts, engineering, science, and mathematics college in Claremont, California. Dr. Dadaboy researches the role of identity and difference in literature, and she has a chapter in the monumental new Cambridge Companion to Shakespeare and Race that's called Barbarian Moors, documenting racial formation in early modern England. The material she gathered for that chapter, and frankly a large portion of her entire academic career, are based around the idea that students can and should be moved toward a new way of looking at concepts of race in the plays of Shakespeare and in all the writings of his contemporaries. She joined us to talk about all of this for a podcast we call in the old age, black was not counted fair. Ombreen Dadaboy is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. I'd like to start with talking about what the black presence was in London in Shakespeare's time. What do we know about who they were and where they came from and how Shakespeare's audiences would have come in contact with darker skinned people and, and what their impressions might have been? We actually know quite a bit about the Black people who were living in London during Shakespeare's time due to the research of scholars like Imtiaz Habib, whose Black Lives in the English Archives traces the um, who these people were, where they lived, and, and really done a lot of that through court records and trying to figure out how early modern naming practices would have let us find out who might have been a black person. And so we know that there was a considerable community of black people who lived and worked and died in Shakespeare's London in the early modern period. Oh, that's fascinating. So, the, and, and there was a wide diversity, right? You had Moroccan, African people in London. Mm -hmm. And I think you, there was also travel writing, and was there a romance genre that had black-skinned characters? Yes. If we go back thinking about the Middle Ages and the popularity of certain kinds of romance forms, a lot of romances take place in the Holy Land, and the, the fact of the Holy Land is also a place where you have a lot of encounter with people who are different culturally, linguistically, religiously, but also racially and ethnically. And so in, in many of those kinds of romances that are also kind of crusader romances, you do have African characters, black characters, Moorish characters who might be Muslim characters, and this kind of cross-cultural encounter and exchange. And in some of those, you have a kind of fixation on color where the 
some of them are also conversion narratives. And so if Islamic characters are converting to Christianity or black pagan characters are converting to Christianity, they might also be turning white, sometimes literally in these romances, but other times just kind of symbolically. So we see that genre, it was quite popular in the Middle Ages, and then it's also popular in the early modern period. And so crusader or holy land encounter stories, and they still have a little bit of those kind of conflict narratives. They're transformed into other kinds of encounters now when we've traveled a couple centuries forward. That is so interesting that then Shakespeare's audiences would have some kind of familiarity with a population that's so diverse in terms of otherness, I guess, uh, non-white. But I'm thinking of that famous edict by the Queen in 1601 to collect and deport blackamoors from England. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that was specifically directed at people from Spain, right? And also directed at slaves. So it was directed at the black population who are identified as having come from Spain, but we might want to think about how they got to Spain. And in that period, the Spanish and the Portuguese both being quite involved in the slave trade from the Atlantic into what Europeans call the New World. The Iberian kingdoms were practicing um, enslavement from about the middle of the 15th century. We think about this population that in the edicts is identified as having come from Spain, but what were they doing in Spain? Um, They were probably people who were kidnapped from Africa, either themselves or their ancestors might have been. Right. So when the queen asked the Lord Mayor to deport the Blackamoors, it's really directed at anyone Spanish, whether slave or not, and it, and it has more to do with that um, animosity between the two countries than with actual skin color? I don't know that I would say that. I mm. would say that it has a lot to do with skin color, and she is not talking about Spanish people in that edict, right? So these would have been people who were in service to the Spanish and are racially distinct from Spanish people, and the fact that she identifies them as Blackamoors suggests then that they were Black African people. Uh, it's it's complicated. And, and while we are talking about the slave trade, mm-hmm. when when did the slave trade start and who was involved in it? That's a really complicated <laughs> question. <laughs> um, but we should know be- this. I mean, <laughs> this, is why, this is what's so fascinating about your research, that we... There's so much misinformation, really. There is so much misinformation. And there's also just thinking regionally, right? If we think about the process of enslavement in the Mediterranean, and we think about Mediterranean empires, enslavement has been going on for thousands of years. Now, when we talk about Atlantic slavery, we are talking about a related but also kind of different kind and form of enslavement because Mediterranean slavery was still slavery and there was a lot of African slavery that was going through the Mediterranean but often that slaver that form of slavery wasn't inheritable in the same way that the transatlantic program of enslavement becomes right so you don't have a whole kind of generation um, after generation yes, of enslavement yeah, yeah. I th- I think there has been a resistance to thinking about how 
enslavement has been the engine for all of the glories of the European Renaissance and the sort of discoveries of the early modern period and, and what then resulted in the kind of ascendancy of Europe over the rest of the world. At least that's how the narrative gets told, the right? Myth of the of the glorious enlightenment. The, yeah. 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 And we're going to get, we're going to talk about that in a moment, but I should get back to what we were talking about, which is in Shakespeare's time by the late 1500s or early 1600s. Does this history mean that English people already associate dark skin with enslavement and servitude? English people are already trained, and, and we have scholars like Anthony Bartlemy has talked about this in his book, Blackface, Maligned Race, where the image of blackness as associated with sin, with the devil, all of these things makes it quite easy to map onto then black people these kinds of characteristics. And then those kinds of characteristics allow for the argument that these people are fit to be enslaved. So institutionalized. So mm -hmm. Shakespearean audiences then already had exposure to or thoughts uh, along these lines, and they're getting it from different aspects of culture. What I learned from reading your work is that Shakespeare was hardly the only playwright to write about non-English characters. Uh, you write that in his day, at least 50 plays featured characters that were marked as racially or religiously different from the, their English audiences. So how does Othello compare to these other productions? Is it, is it a similar depiction of, of otherness to what we see in these plays? I don't think so. I mean, one of the things about Shakespeare is he does something different than than what other people are doing. And so in my recent article on the Battle of Alcazar, that is a, a play that predates Othello. And it really kind of was one that was really influential in showcasing Moore's on the early modern stage. Certainly, I don't think it was the first play to do so, but it was the play that really centered on Morocco, focused on presenting this Moorish villain character whose racial blackness becomes the, that blackness gives the reason for his villainy. He, he is black, therefore he is a villain. You're talking about George Peel's play, The Battle of Alcazar, and it was from 1594. And as you say, it takes place in Morocco. Uh, and we'll get back to Othello in a moment, but it's really interesting what you have to say about this. It's based on current events at the time. It's a power struggle between three kings in 1578. Could, could you just fill us in and give us the thumbnail sketch? Sure. So the Battle of Alcazar is this famous battle of Alcazar al-Kabir, which is famous in Europe because the, and it's called the Battle of Three Kings because three kings end up dying in this battle. Um, the king of Portugal, Sebastian, and two Moroccan kings end up dying. One is the pretender to the throne and one is the uh, legitimate king. And then after this battle, we have a new king who is Al-Mansur. And in the play, he's called Muli Hamid Seth, uh, or Muli Seth. The Englishizing of all of these names is yeah, really, really problematic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but but Al-Mansur ends up being the king who 
is the one who negotiates with Elizabeth I. And it's his ambassador who, who we have the famous portrait of um, and who Shakespeare might have seen uh, because they were part of certain royal pageants. Ah, and, and I mean, it's complicated, but you, you and you say in your writing, the, the play is very short and, and very strange. But what you really get into is the way in which the word Negro in the play conveys so much uh, it, that it's used as a keyword. Mm-hmm. So how is it deployed and what does it connote and what light does it shed on the topic we're talking about today? Yeah, I think for me, it was really interesting to follow the use and mobilization of that word in the play because I I came to this play having read about it before I even read the play. So I had a, a preconceived notion of what I was going to find. And a lot of the scholarship about it talks about how in this play we have white moors and we have black moors and that the fact that we have all of these kinds of moors suggests that race as we understand it in terms of the symbolic loading of meaning onto skin is not present in this play. Right. That's the traditional scholarship. That's what traditional scholarship says. That's proof that race as we know it it didn't, people weren't thinking that way back in that time. And and so that was my introduction to this play. But then when I read it and I I noticed the frequency of the use of Negro, um, I felt that something was happening here, right? I felt that Negro here was not a value neutral descriptor. In this period, the use of Negro in various European languages is always connected to the kinds of discourses that we associate with race and that Negro has a specific meaning that is tied to being, being made fit for a certain kind of dominance by European and white powers. Is this where you see that Moors are called barbarians, meaning from Barbary, but also they start to get the connotation of barbarians, less civilized? Yeah, I I think that that's one really interesting thing that happens in this play, too, because, again, the kind of... um, ambivalence that you point out in terms of the, the there are multiple meanings that are being conveyed at the same time through the use of barbarian kind of engenders a kind of racial incoherence already in the play so that you know the noble Moor Abdul Malik he's also called a barbarian and he calls himself a barbarian but in that context it's usually I am from Barbary, and therefore I am calling myself a barbarian. But then when it's applied to Mulihamid, it's in connection to Negro. And so the Negro barbarian, and in that context, it means barbarian in the sense of how we use the word now, right? Uncivilized, and then also Black. And so those are the moments where we can put pressure and see how race is being mobilized to make it very clear that this is the villain and and he's a villain because of his blackness and his Africanness and and here is a good guy um, the the good so-called white moor who in the play is not really described as a white moor but that's how critics have have read him 
So, oh, I see. So, well, is yeah. it is it is it that there's a Negro Moor and then just Moors? I mean, it's, does mm-hmm. Negro become this freighted word or a slur or conflation of color into into race? Yes, th- that is exactly what what is happening in this play. Wow. So, is that the origins of racial thinking? Is that how you see it? I, I don't think it's the origins of racial thinking, but I think it's a very powerful example of how race is already being understood, um, operating in a, a shorthand that is legible to audiences. Blackness working in concert with villainy, untrustworthiness, fit for servitude, but also a warning, right? There's this moment where at the end of the play where the new king says that Muhammad should be skinned and his skin should be displayed as a warning to those who might follow, right? And so mm-hmm. in the early modern period, we had lots of forms of corporal punishment and sort of the display of of the, uh, the heads of traitors and things like that on the walls of the city. But Those interesting that it's common. being skinned. I mean, he yeah. could have been drawn and quartered or any of the other nasty, nasty things. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that's the point, right? That his skin becomes the sign of his villainy and a sign of warning. Right. But somehow scholars look at this play and argue that race and racism, as we understand it, aren't present in it because the term more is so inexact and ambiguous. Yes. They kind of um, invert their <laughs> invert what you're saying. <laughs> yes, but you know when we um, and and here is the benefit of studying scholars of race like Stuart Hall, for example, who very clearly tells us that race is a discourse and it, it is a shifting discourse, and that part of how the discourse accrues its power because that that power is always historically contingent mm-hmm. is in the, its malleability. It is not something that is fixed. And certainly uh, later centuries will try to fix race into certain kinds of concrete meanings, but even those won't hold, right? We don't hold to the 19th century biological explanations of race anymore, and yet we still try to fix race even now. And we we know that it is an unfixable thing, and it is about power and domination Yes, and colonialism and all of this stuff. Well, now we do have a fuller picture of the context for Othello. And uh, speaking to colonialism and power and geopolitics in the play, Venice and Cyprus are very important to the action. What does each place represent? In a lot of traditional scholarship on the play, Venice has very much represented the site of European order, and a a European city that is sort of besieged by a dangerous enemy that that we never see, but that we hear about a lot, especially in act one. uh, And that is of course the Ottoman empire. And then Cyprus represents being in that border region Hmm. uh, where one can potentially go native in the certain context. And if we're talking about the Um, imperial contest between Venice and the Ottoman Empire and if Venice is supposed to stand for Europe and the Ottoman Empire is supposed to stand for the dangerous eastern other then we see in Cyprus how one is endangered by being in close proximity 
to that dangerous other. Okay, so we take that understanding of geography or the geopolitics and and apply it to the themes uh, uh, in Othello. How does it shape or inform, for instance, our understanding, your understanding of Othello's character? So um, I I think a lot about Othello, of course. (laughs) I bet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I think that many of us who work on Shakespeare and race, of course, think a lot about Othello. Um, But I think a lot about this play also because I work in in the context of the Mediterranean and in the context of the Ottoman Empire. And really, for me, one of the things that is interesting to think about with this character is that he also represents... Like this is a character that owes a lot to the the kinds of issues that we see come up in George Peel's The Battle of Alcazar, but also this character, it's very important to situate him within the context of the Eastern Mediterranean and in the context of the Ottoman Empire. So uh, <laughs> one of the things that I understand about how the geography works in informing Othello's construction is that we're... we're deep in the Eastern Mediterranean with this play. So we're moving from Cyprus or from Venice to Cyprus and uh, Cyprus is quite close to sort of the center of power of the Ottoman Empire, thinking about Istanbul. The Ottomans really control much of this Eastern Mediterranean geography during the time that Shakespeare is writing this play, but also during the time where Shakespeare might have set this play, which would be probably uh, about 40 years before um, 1603. So thinking through the this geography, and then you have this black, more African character, and and you're wondering how this character fits in. And, And the play kind of seems to want to ask, what are his loyalties? That comes out very clearly in the play at the end, where Othello talks about you know, taking by the throat the circumcised dog and smoting him thus, right? And so mm-hmm. he kind of destroys the internal Turk inside of him through the hand of Venetian authority. So those are all the kind of competing forces that are playing upon him. But that still doesn't address the fact of Othello's blackness. I mean, that that has, I think, troubled this play so much in terms of where does the Moor fit in to this discourse about empire? Right, yes, because these are all cultural imperatives that we're talking about. Where does the actual, the the race, yeah, skin color Mm -hmm. come in? Mm -hmm. And how do you understand that? For me, I think that the play asks us to think about how Blackness is actively being constructed by characters who have power in order to influence how we understand race. So I'm really thinking about the the way that the play opens with, not with Othello, but with Iago and Rodrigo, shaping for us how we should interpret the Moor and Othello and really relying on lurid imagery of Othello's sexuality and the kind of potential violation of Desdemona that they um, conjure for Brabantio. And so we see here already Othello as kind of being uh, hypersexualized and also criminalized in a way 
through the elopement. And then when we finally see Othello, he is, of course, so different from what we have been led to believe by Iago. And yet Iago is so much in control of the narrative that as an audience, we fall into his plots. And so we kind of become complicit in reading Othello in the way that Iago wants us to read him, which means we also read his blackness in the way that Iago wants us to read him. And I think Othello falls into that trap too when he begins to doubt Desdemona's love for him and one of the things, or her fidelity, when he um, uh, he, he, he talks about how nature erring from itself in terms of talking about Desdemona's it would be in her nature to, to love someone who was from her own culture. And so in loving him, her nature is erring from itself. And then he also says in that same scene, happily for I am black, right? It must be because I'm black that she is now unfaithful to me, right? And so his blackness, he, he's- He's internalized. He's alienated. He's, yeah. Yes, he's internalized the, those in power, their way of thinking of his mm-hmm. own of his own. But and but then you have Desdemona's line. I saw his visage in his mind, his true mm-hmm. image, which you see. But even that is so problematic, right? Because yeah. it's I saw his it's visage in his mind. So does that mean you didn't see his visage? That is that the whole world can see, right? That and that there is a, a difference between the visage in his mind versus the visage that is presented to the world is one white and one not white. So I think um, I, for me, the play really kind of presents the illusion of what a tolerant society might be, but it's, it's really about um, the danger of letting others into the familiar and intimate spaces of your society. So I think I, for me, the, the play is really exclusionary and it's not necessarily one that has a, a positive image. And I, and I feel this very strongly every time I see the play performed that mm. it just doesn't work for me. I, I, this is really interesting because I, I want to step back now to the bigger picture because your work, uh, it really puts a different spin on Othello and it also puts such a different spin on the traditional thinking about the Renaissance with a capital T and a capital R. I mean, as you put it in in your essay, uh, empire is built on exploitation, on bondage, on enslavement, on genocide of indigenous people. And you ask in that same paragraph, how can we have this glorious early modern period if it's also implicated in all of those things? How do you answer that question? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) it just requires teaching, really teaching this whole period differently, it seems. It really does. It requires, I think, teaching this period different, certainly differently from how I was taught. And it it requires understanding all of the kinds of violences that enabled these empires to exist. And, and if we don't do that, we reconstruct history in a way that is dishonest and that gets us to the problems where we that we have right now in our own culture where people don't want to face the reality of the past and really kind of understand why we have all of the issues that we have with injustice and particularly racial injustice in this country and also I would say in the UK. And when you were coming up in the academy 
you know, when you were writing your dissertation, were you coming up against the old way of, of teaching Shakespeare? Were, were people saying, like, oh, if you're interested in this race stuff, you have to, you're, you're, you're in this niche. Yes, um, I, I, you're in this niche or it, it doesn't exist. And so you're talking about something that has no relevance. Has someone said that to you? <laughs> yeah. Your dissertation has no relevance to the period? <laughs> I mean, luckily it wasn't my advisor, <laughs> but, um, but it really was in uh, how I got to my topic was really from a moment of teaching Othello, really. And so that's also another reason why I think about this play so much is because even if race wasn't relevant in the period or to this play, if I teach it right now in the 21st century, it is relevant and it's in the room with me, not just because of who I am, but because of the play that I've chosen to teach. I, th I think there is a preconceived notion for people who don't go deep into the scholarship on race, and not just early modern scholarship on race, but really kind of the scholarship on race done by black feminist scholars or even post-colonial scholars. If you're not conversant with that work, then you're not going to understand that the things that you're identifying as not race are actually deeply connected to race. I, I don't want to essentialize identity, but I think that for white scholars, if you've never had to think about race as a thing that you have to concern yourself with in your life, because you don't think about whiteness as being a race category, then you're not going to be you're not going to have the tools to be able to even understand that race is in front of you mm. when it's just standing there. Yeah, and I think now we're getting to this term that is so perfect that that I've never heard anyone really say it this way that you use. Uh, you say it's the white way of knowing. Yeah, I mean, I think that it it's the practices of how we read, how we think, that they are all kind of regulated by the modes of whiteness. So is it a kind of deliberate colorblind notion, this notion of this is a colorblind way of knowing? Or is it just a, um, it's an un unconscious, you know, lack of awareness? I think it is an unconscious lack of awareness because I think, you know, like for, for white people, um, like white people can just be people. Even the idea of objectivity. Me, as a scholar, I am just sort of a disembodied mind that is <laughs> interpreting all of these things. And yet I am a scholar who is located in a body, who is located in a race, who is located in a gender, in a sexuality, and all of these things that influence how I think. So, you know, knowing this, seeing this, writing about this, how does it change how you teach your students? Well, one of the, the ways that it definitely changes how I teach my students is that those influence the kinds of questions that we ask. And I tell them that it's okay to come from a certain kind of position, but it's also necessary then for us to think about the, the positions that we can't occupy and the blind spots that we might have, right? Where we don't even, we don't know what we don't know and we mm. don't know what we haven't experienced and how um, th that dialogue is really important because we might be overlooking something simply because 
we haven't we didn't even know to ask that question well we could go on for weeks um, and I wish we could I really love talking with you about this thank you so much thank you Dr. Ambreen Databoy is an assistant professor of literature at Harvey Mudd College in Claremont, California. Her chapter in the Cambridge Companion to Shakespeare and Race is called Barbarian Moors Documenting Racial Formation in Early Modern England. The Cambridge Companion to Shakespeare and Race was published by Cambridge University Press in 2021. Dr. Databoy was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Our podcast, In the Old Age, Black Was Not Counted Fair, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, please leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.